I had a claim to fame at my primary school. And it was that I was the first person to draw a plane in a particular way. And to me, that was the most important thing in the world. I remember fighting a young guy, well not fighting, arguing because you're a kid, right? With a young guy called Kirk Stevens. And I think in previous podcasts I've established that I was not a scholastic genius by any shape of the imagination. But Kirk Stevens had the effrontery after me taking time to teach him how to draw a Spitfire aeroplane to tell all the kids at school and especially in our class that he was the one who drew and brought that idea to our class and I remember thinking my god my life is never going to be the same I'm never ever going to recover from this loss of face how dare he Um, (laughs) there are much more important things going on in the world at that time in my life and in the life of the world and the life of the people around me and all that sort of stuff but I remember thinking as a kid that that was my one claim to fame that was my thing that was the thing which made me special and interesting and one thing that made me stand out from the other kids and I was reflecting on that the other day when I was reading some material on a particular martial arts master now It's very easy, I think, to become focused on these masters and to idealize them. But, you know, I was sort of thinking to myself, you know, you see these guys and their physical ability and all the rest of that. I mean, surely they had children or or they had to pay mortgages or the equivalent of they had illness and people passing away unexpectedly and they had to keep the lights on or the candles lit, or whatever it is. Um, They had to pay for food. They had to think about going to the doctors and all these kinds of things. And when we think about masters, particularly in karate, because there's a lot written about them, it tends to focus more on their physical skill and ability as opposed to their contribution just in general. And I think it lends itself really interestingly to people getting into these kind of conjecture battles about who they were and what they bought and they were martial geniuses and so on and so forth another example of that would be in my own culture so we have a number of weapons and martial arts systems indigenous to the Māori people here in Aotearoa and I remember when as a kid I started to really learn them although I didn't know what I was learning at the time. I was way more interested in Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan and all those sort of things. And uh, I remember this guy standing up at our marae, which is kind of a meeting place, and talking about, you know, how his grandfather or someone, one of his elders, told him that, you know, when people learned a particular weapon or a particular technique, they would go off into the bush and spend a ridiculous amount of time learning or practicing a particular technique. Now we've heard that a lot in particularly the Asian martial arts where I know there's a story of this guy who they called the demon in the Kodokan 
who had this incredible osotagare or some such judo technique and it was said the the reason that he was so amazing was that he would go and sort of seclude himself in temples and or up in the bush or up in the mountains and just practice this one particular technique until it was just second nature to him until it was a bread in the bone and it was an unstoppable technique uh, you see that also with people like uh, Miyamoto Musashi who was said to have lived this kind of hermit lifestyle up in the mountains spending time practicing his sword technique and other martial arts apparently and then you have people like uh, the late great Masayama founder of Kyokushin Kai Karate who spent famously a number of years secluded uh, in the mountains as well training night and day in the snow and the different seasons and all that now in this particular instance I'm referring to uh, with one of my elders he stood up and said you know while, while you're, this guy you're talking about was away in the bush or in the jungle training this particular technique who fed his family um, and probably something to know about Polynesian culture in particular Maori culture is we're a seasonal gatherer of people uh, in that it's hunting and fishing and particularly the growing of vegetables and all these sorts of things so that stuff requires ongoing constant attention and I remember thinking it was quite funny because this guy was kind of adamant oh you know it was like some kung fu movie this guy went out and he practiced and he knew a prayer for every particular movement so kind of rolled my eyes and thought yeah um, that was probably true because you know the child in me wanted to believe that now as I've gotten older and have children and have responsibilities and things like that myself I'm going hey actually you know the idea of going away and training I mean if I was to sort of say to my family hey look I'm going to go practice front kicks I'm going to practice my giddy for the next 8 months uh, you guys have got this right <laughs> Kia ora, welcome to the Invisible Sensei podcast. This is a podcast about my experiences as a martial artist, as a student, as a teacher, as someone who from time to time has stubbed their toes on the problems of the world and kind of gone, what am I doing this for? Please take time to check out the link in the description. It will take you to our YouTube channel and also to our profiles on social media, which you're most welcome to check out and contact us on. We also have a wonderful merch shop where you can grab cups and a couple of other things if you're wanting to support the podcast. Or if you're wanting to support it more directly, we have a link that you can do that also. Either way, enjoy the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in and keep training, keep smiling, keep enjoying, and most importantly, keep developing. <laughs> Will not go down too well. And it started me thinking about you know, when we talk about the master's legacy and all those sort of things, I guess for me, what I'm starting to do is look at more than the physical technique that they created. And I think particularly with Okinawan Karate, there is, well at least for me and in my experience, there are these, all these wonderful kind of tales, which is part and parcel of the culture I get, you know, um, these fantastic tales of the physical prowess. And having students myself and them you know calling me sensei and all these kind of things and them not knowing much about Japanese or Okinawan culture the idea of calling someone sensei in their head means master so I'm thinking about if I am this master at least in their head I mean you and I can both agree I'm not a master 
but kids do tune up at the dojo in particular with all these stereoid what's the word uh, expectations about what a martial arts person is I've also seen that in a number of people who've attended the dojo over the years who've expected a sensei to be some kind of oracle of counselling and virtue and honour and integrity and I've had people come and ask me marital advice and financial advice and people come and ask me whether or not they should take a job now just to be clear uh, <laughs> I am the last person you should ask about any of those things I just don't see that as, as my role hopefully when people come to the dojo they see something that they want to emulate in terms of physical technique and hopefully they enjoy and train and at least some of the discovery of themselves when it comes to this kind of stories of long dead masters they do tend to get embellished and also it becomes fertile, fertile ground for dissension in politics because we're talking about people who are now dwelling only in our imaginations and in the absence of information we tend to fill in the gaps that's what worries me so what did the masters know what did the masters know about technique and about life and all those sort of things well i think they were regular humans i think we have this thing where we kind of build them up to be these paragons of of everything I'm, and i know for instance in my own style okinawan gojuru Miyagi Chojan Sensei lost several children very tragically during the, during the Second World War and he never regained from all reports full health again. Imagine the emotional, mental and physical, spiritual toll that a battle that raged across your homeland and killed thousands and thousands of people. You're caught in between these two, a rock and a hard place and literally you know, you're getting killed and getting shot and people can't eat and then afterwards, after the conflict, you know, people are starving to death, they've come back to a to a desolate land. The thing that I feel that I would like to learn from their example is not just about karate or judo or kubudo and all these things. It's an example of resilience. Now, you know, people talk about resilience and it's a very much a sort of a new agey catchphrase. You know, we're learning cultural, we're learning spiritual and physical resilience. But I think resilience comes back to the way in which we conduct ourselves in the world. If I can approach illness or the loss of a job or a loved one with some degree of insight and resilience, then maybe I'm using karate in a way that is more productive than whether or not I can bury my foot through a wooden board. I'm not begging tamashiwara or anything like that. What I'm saying is, is how do we choose to utilize the intelligence and the example of these masters? Sometimes we do tend to get into this place of hero worship, which is completely, completely understandable because we've been set up to do that. I certainly was conditioned to do that. But what did the masters know? I think it's important to not lose sight of their humanity as people. And you know, you know that practitioner, that type of practitioner who kind of turns up and they are, what's the word? They're looking for a father figure. And, and I number myself amongst those. Looking for someone to look up to and model themselves on. I think, if anything, I like to think that the masters, if they were here, or maybe you know some, maybe you've met some. 
would encourage us to be the best, authentic, coolest versions of ourselves. And for me, you know, it comes down to what in our life do we have which is worth protecting. Now doing all these techniques and going to tournaments and travelling all over the world and all this sort of stuff, even doing a podcast, is rendered meaningless unless we have things in our life which are worth dying for. And that's not me, that's Mark the King saying. So when you think about the masters, when you think about these people that we have up on the walls at the end of the dojo, I would encourage you, as I encourage myself, to spend time to get to know them, not just as these kind of, you know, grey stoic figures, but as living, breathing humans with all the frailty that it implies. Get to know what it was that made them masters. What kind of lifestyle did they live? What did the culture teach them? We tend to focus, as I said before, on the physical, but what we need to do, what I need to do, is remember that I'm every bit the master that they were. <laughs> Blasphemy, isn't it? No, I'm, I don't mean that in the sense that I'm a master. I'm every bit the human being, the same human, be human being for the most part with the same physical capabilities and potential if I work hard and try to understand myself. So for me, what did the masters know? I think the masters knew themselves. <laughs>